Golden Plateau and the University of the South. This is the Swanee Review Podcast. Welcome to the Swanee Review Podcast. I'm Eric Smith, Managing Editor of the Review. And I'm here today in the Ralston Listening Room with Annalena Phillips-Bell, whose poems appear in our Fall 2019 issue. Annalena is the author of Ornament, which won the Vassar Miller Prize from the University of North Texas Press, and A Pocket Book of Forms. She teaches at the University of North Carolina Wilmington, where she edits Ecotone. She is also a print and papermaker and calls old-time Appalachian Square dances in Piedmont, North Carolina, and beyond. Annalena, we're so glad to have you on the mountain. Welcome to the Swanee Review Podcast. Thanks so much, Eric. We were, as a staff, immediately transfixed by the poems you sent us. Uh, And I am certain that our listeners will have the same reaction. So I was wondering if we could start there with your poem, Sheen. Sure. Sheen. Seventeen, I slipped into a blue shimmer of satin, slid my card, slipped out of Dillard's to my mother's shock at the price and into the hope of glow, of a new looked-on self, chin-tilted, indifferent, a gleaming silvered surface. But getting dressed, I spilled nail polish remover over the skirt, seared off its shine. In the scattered light of the altered gem, the sleek dress drew me tall as I drew in to hide the slashes down my thigh. My date pretended not to notice, but I could tell. Pretending I was this had a limit, and I'd reached it. I stood, still, in the sheen of all I had, my satin, my stain. I'm just astonished by this poem, the way it navigates that threshold between adulthood and adolescence, this awareness of commerce and the body and um, thwarted desires of all kinds. And so just selfishly, maybe, I kind of want to know where did you enter this poem or, or where did this poem announce itself as itself? It's hard to be a person in a body, right? I just, um, my senior prom was a miserable experience in many ways and also a really fun one. Like I went with people I really liked, but years after I was thinking about some of the various traumas of that evening, which I think were related to trying really hard to be a girl in the way that it seemed like it was right to be a girl. And it seemed to me at the time very much that there was a right way and a wrong way and no in between, which is sad. And I think, I think that things are a little better now. I think it's easier to, to inhabit different versions of that. I was just walking around today, in fact, on campus and looking at all the different ways that people are presenting themselves and all the different things people have chosen to wear and just feeling like it's easier now. I mean, that said, I still, you know, I walk through the world with certain kinds of privilege. I'm white, I'm non-disabled, and and still it can be hard to be a person in a body. But, um, but back then for me, it was especially hard. And so I just wanted to think about the ways that it was hard. The, the moment in the poem that, that I can't shake is 
pretending I was this had a limit and I'd reached it. And I'm thinking about all the the kinds of limits that the poem approaches or reaches and then in some cases exceeds not only in terms of its content but also the structure of it. I mean, we're we're initially sort of introduced to this as a sonnet and sort of the restrictions that that makes the poem operate under. And there's also a a really dense what sonic or melic architecture to the poem that gives a, a certain kind of shape. And so I'm I'm just curious about these kinds of limits, both in terms of the content, which you've talked about already, but also some of these um, structural limits that you feel this poem and other poems sort of uh, reaching or coming up against. In writing, I find that limit is an incredibly constructive force and really fun and allows me to talk about things that I wouldn't otherwise. And I feel like this has been said many times before, but the act of of compression helps helps the feeling of the poem arrive on the page in a way that's pleasing to me. I think this didn't used to be a sonnet. I think it used to be longer, and I realized it did not need to be so long. Um, and so I had fun mashing it <laughs> into its shape. Well, and that was going to be my question is, how often does the poem's content recommend its shape, or vice versa, when, when do you start from some restriction, whether it be in line or meter or some sort of sound pattern and then find your way into the poem. I mean, clearly this one, as you said, started as the poem that then found its shape. I do often start with um, within, well, maybe let's not call it within the constraint of, but let's say within the possibilities of meter. And lately, in particular, I've been trying to work from non-iambic meters because I feel like the speech of where I grew up falls into those rhythms in a pretty nice way, those triple rhythms, and also uh, because it's fun to write in those. So sometimes I just start with that and see what happens. I've also been playing around with the French repeating forms a lot lately. I'm using them for a new project, and I find them really fun too, a little frustrating at times, but but really fun. And then sometimes it's like I need to just like not think about anything and go, but I do better it's easier to start when there is some kind of formal interestingness that I can begin with. I want to step back for a minute to something you said about the speech patterns of where you come from. Can you talk a little bit about one, where you come from and two, what you hear when you hear the speech of home? What does it sound like to you? What are you, as a poet, what are you alert to now that was, you just sort of naturally embodied when you lived there? I decided in second grade that I was not going to have a Southern accent, which is a decision I came to regret very much. And then in college, like I tried to get it back. Sometimes, I mean, some people will say it's always there, but I think sometimes more than others. I think that was just a response to being like a miserable kid in a rural elementary school who was bored by what was happening in class. You know what I mean? Like I just, but I wish I hadn't done that. Um, My mom is from low country South Carolina and my dad grew up in Columbia, South Carolina. So they have those kinds of speech and my family on either side has has the speech of those regions. And I don't know, there's something about 
especially a certain kind of telling a story or talking about something familiar to people in my family, where there'll just be a lot of little tripleness happening in the in the rhythms of what's happening. And, and when you're like being a little goofy, which it's easier to do talking with people you know and love, that happens more often. And so sometimes writing in like a falling triple meter, I feel like I can get into that space of feeling like I'm telling a joke to someone in my family. And then I think that's interesting. I think it's fun to be in that spot. It's also a a way of reframing what we think about when we talk about inheriting a poetic tradition. I mean, we think about it in terms of what's anthologized or, as you said, what we're bored by in the classroom. But you're talking about a way of listening and participating in language and inheriting uh, a tradition of the, in the art of language from you know, strictly familial lines and cultural lines of where you come from and where your family comes from. Yeah, which is, let's be clear, like kind of a mixed blessing. Like not everything in my family and cultural heritage do I want to hang on to, but trying to find things that are meaningful and valuable, the way somebody tells a story can be can be pretty good. That can be something worth keeping. It's in mapping, right? Where the mapping of the hostas oh, yeah. is, is on these pieces, almost indecipherable that you sort of find afterwards. And it's a way of walking back through a space that someone else has been through and trying to sort of puzzle out how they locate things and name things and, and how you make sense of that past in the present moment. Absolutely. And recently I've been thinking even more about that, thinking about, you know, what Western nomenclature has erased of indigenous knowledge of the places where I grew up and feel like are my home, but that I know I can call home because of certain kinds of erasure. And I'm just really curious right now about what other ways of mapping and naming have been in the places that I've loved. So that's something I'm investigating a lot, not just my family, but back beyond. In terms of poems or? So often the plant world is background for for some other more quote unquote consequential thing. But for me growing up, the plant world was the thing. Like I got, I was lucky, I got to spend a lot of time running around in the woods. The smell of the woods where I grew up is like part of me. It's really important to me. And so when I think about how to know that better, I think it's a very human impulse to say, well, what's the name of this thing and this thing? But of course, the names I had access to as a kid, you know, learning from my mom and books or whatever, were Western names imposed on this landscape, useful, like very helpful, but also those aren't the only names. So like, what are the other ones? I just feel like it's my job to know that or ask permission to know it anyway. I wonder if this would be a good opportunity to maybe read one of those poems to bring the backdrop into the foreground as you do so often in the poems and ornament. Yeah, all right. Trillium. They grow down in the bottom where the deer lie down in grass and leave their bodies echoes on the ground. Each year, the trilliums send three leaves and then three petals into the air. We headed down the bank, past thorns and stones that hold the bridge upright. My brother swung along the creek and brushed past three-leaved stems, red-veined. 
You'll catch poison ivy, I called. It's elder, Annie, it's a tree, he said, and swooped past me, loped along in twilight, shadows dismantled by his boots. I followed, elder. Where the water bends to the hollow, we ducked into a deer track, left the creek night-talking. Silky grass swallowed our footsteps and branches snatched at our eyes. The narrow path came wider by the clearing. This is where the deer sleep, right? He whispered. In the day, yes, I said. But when deer bark in the night, it looks like this. Our eyes kept closed against branches, opened slowly to a shimmering white, flower sleeves that lit themselves and flared over dark leaves. Like stars, whose light is both a wailed call and calm response, they leapt out from shadow as we leaned down to breathe the barest scent of pepper from their centers and walked among green leaf and flame-white petal, careful that our feet did not catch fire. I love that poem. Thanks. Hearing you read it now, one of the things that I find interesting is that, so two things, but they're related to that word elder, the play on that in terms of naming a plant, but also sort of signifying the speaker space and that familiar order, right? Being elder than the brother. And so it seems to me that another reflection of that project you're talking about, about the way through language we discover that there is a name for it, but that is not the only thing it represents. What's true about my being elder in that poem is that it does not give me a hold on all the knowledge at all. Like, my brother knows more than me about this particular plant that we're looking at in this particular moment, and I'm trying to be solicitous and keep him from getting in trouble, and he's like, it's fine. It's important for me and for you know, for for women, I think, to be able to say when we do know something, but I also want always to have an attitude of, like, what do I still not know? You know, which names for these plants have I been completely oblivious to, and would would it be useful and wise for me to try to know? And not just names, like, what systems of thinking about plants and their own agency in the world have I not thought about yet? It can seem like those systems are just going to keep doing what they do forever, but we know that they are also, although they're very resilient, they're under all kinds of threat, which is, that's what this new project I'm working on, Believe, is thinking about ways that plant communities in the southeastern U.S. and beyond are threatened by climate change and introduced species, ways that I would, you know, I was worried I would not notice, and so I had to make a way for myself to keep paying attention to do you feel like there's a a poem from Ornament that is already inhabiting that space or is sort of pointing to the f- work that you're focused on now that you might share with us and then maybe talk about some of those choices you've made aesthetically that sort of answer that same concern? Qualifications for one to be climbed by a vine. If not utter stillness, at least dedication to sloth, if not sandpaper surface, the texture of knotty fence posts or the trees they were made from. Resistance to gravity, if not pure vertical, angling up and so closer to sunlight. When wavering, greenest of greenest, a curling shoot chooses its tangent from rootstock to leaf out, I wonder if I should stand straighter, 
stiller, or stretch out a finger to capture the waggle of winnowing vine tip, which one would it wend to? I channel the light pole, the stake and the slender gray post of old cedar, the wire that connects it to others a vine could extend its new tendrils around over hours or days. Could I stand it? Stand still and stay put for enough of a lifetime for waver to wander toward me and find me, describe me in spirals as road leading sunward. I'd like to think that I had questions about this poem, but really the only one in my notes is Ars Poetica? Question mark. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> I used to. I used to think that, like, being a plant would be the thing, but I don't think that so much anymore. I think like being in a human body and figuring out all the ways to be in relation to plants is probably the thing. And I really did want to answer that question when I wrote this poem, like, what would it take? Noticing the living thing and asking what its needs are, which is overwhelming because there's a lot of living things and a lot of non-living systems that support those living things. So, like, that's sort of the terror of, of being alive right now. Some of it is, how do you think about all the catastrophes at once? Well, of course you don't. But thinking about one being and being in relation to it in a way that might that that being might call successful, yeah, that's a more modest goal. That might be doable. Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu backslash Ralston. How does that doable modesty and some of the other things you've talked about today, how does, how does some of that orientation of the world affect your work as an editor? Oh, that's a fun question. It's a fun question because as an editor, it's, it's not so much my job to, to answer, answer the question, but to find other people answering it and find a place for their work in the world. And that is a pleasure. And people are doing that in so many other tasks in so many different ways that I that I feel like there's just a lot to there's a lot of riches out there to think about and to share with people. So Ecotone is a literary magazine that seeks to reimagine place and it has always interpreted that charge pretty broadly. It was founded in two thousand five at UNC Wilmington by my now colleague David Gessner and graduate students in our MFA program, and I became its editor in 2013. And the job of the magazine, as I see it, is to think about place in ways that let people have access to that kind of thinking who wouldn't who wouldn't normally consider themselves that interested in it, as well as for people who think about it all the time. But, you know, sometimes we'll choose something for the magazine and someone will be like, why is that about place? And I'm like, well, 
you know, it moves in a particular landscape in a way that's really interesting to me. Or it's about the ways that place and identity, human identity intersect. Or so there are a lot of less obvious ways that we try to think with our readers and contributors about place. And it's always had an environmental and scientific aspect. But I do think that the the environmental aspect is more pressing in my mind lately. You know, recently the Guardian changed its style so that they no longer say climate change, but climate crisis. And I think that that was a good move and is emblematic of the ways that it's necessary to think now. You know, some days making a magazine a place definitely does not seem like enough. And I will say that since I started helping to make this magazine a place, um, I've had less attention for the kinds of choices I make in my daily life that might have an impact on climate crisis. But I also think the magazine sits in that place between individual action and collective or political action, which is a really important place to be because both kinds of action are really important. And some of the work we do scoots over into one of those places and some into the other, and some doesn't even seem to be that environmentally engaged at all, but my feeling is if it gets people to think about place and how they inhabit place in the world, that helps keep the conversation going in a way that, I hope anyway, helps people not shut down into the sort of classic affects of, of environmental crisis of, you know, despair and wonder and like that. And then also, of course, and always, we want to be finding really good work and helping promote that work for the writers who've made it. Because it is a lonely and weird and frustrating thing to be a writer in this literary landscape. And it has been lonelier and weirder and more frustrating for some of us than others. And we are trying to make a space where as many kinds of writers as possible are welcome and their work is celebrated and put out there for people to find. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was something that you write about in your editor's note to the body issue about you've changed the material reality of the magazine itself. You've removed the soft touch laminated cover. You no longer ship the magazine in poly bags. I just, I wonder if you talk about it in such an interesting way in that note about it being both an aesthetic choice about removing that barrier between page and touch, but also the impact that has in terms of the climate, in terms of how this thing gets used when it's no longer a literary magazine. Well, plastic is just so annoying, isn't it? It's just everywhere. And it can feel like that just happened, but in fact, we did that, or we should say, the people in this world with economic and political power did that. And so to make a small move toward divesting from petrochemically derived plastics that, of course, we now know break down in the environment into tinier and tinier particles that attract to them other kinds of particles that you might not want in your body or your food or your landscape, to move away from that even in a small way feels like a, a good thing to do. And I had been wanting to do that for a while it just almost feels like an insult that we are expected to be so dependent on 
plastic. You know what it makes me think about is the way that older kinds of civic architecture seem made to honor the people who walk into those buildings. Like the post office in Durham, North Carolina, the downtown main post office is my favorite post office in the world for various reasons. But one of them is when you walk in the door, it feels like the building kind of settles around your shoulders and is telling you that you are valued as a member of this community. And so many of the spaces and objects that we use now don't tell people that. You know, like fast fashion kind of tells us that our bodies are not worth that much in a way. And there are just so many disposable things. And the more disposable things you end up having to use, the more disposable your life seems. And it's very easy to spiral into a little existential crisis about something that is actually like <laughs> not awful, but can be awful if you multiply it enough. So that's why we made those choices. And again, they are not the only problems to be solved. And some of the work we do in curating the magazine is to think about voices that we might not have heard in the context of place and what we might learn from those voices. So for example, in the body issue, the one that you just mentioned, we have an essay from Arisa White about growing up queer in New York and coming out and sort of learning how to be a person in the world in the context of these community spaces that made that learning possible. And I think that's just as important to think about as whether we're using matte lamination on our cover or not, you know? I think they're both incredibly important. And in that same issue, there's a poem by Patricia Smith that um, that I loved when I first read it and knew that I wanted to share it with our readers that talks about the murder of Philando Castile in a way that I haven't heard anyone else talk about and that I think we needed to hear. So what to say, making a magazine is really fun. Like it's so fun to be able to put all that work in conversation and, and see what happens and see what readers think of it. And doing that with a team that is mostly composed of students in our MFA program who are learning themselves how to edit takes a lot of work, but it is really fun and it is an honor to be able to do that work with them. It makes me think of a couple of things, but uh, what I'm reminded of that I, that I wanted to talk to you about is something you said in that note that I think relates to this is, and I'm quoting you here, we felt the connection between our individual bodies, the body of this place and the bodies of other folks, creatures, and places affected by climate change and structural violence. It's worth recalling how many bodies are doing the work of writing, art making, teaching, healing, science. I mean, it seems to me that you're describing exactly the necessity of that work, the ways in which the curating of art is entirely congruent with a kind of care and stewardship of family and community and place. You said that really well. I, I feel like I can just let that let that rest. Um, <laughs> you know, I was thinking when I was listening to you read that aloud, how exhausted I was when I wrote it. 
you know, it was in the wake of Hurricane Florence, which was pretty devastating for my community and a bunch of others. And a lot of people weren't. And our university community, our schedule was just thrown up in the air and tossed back down. And to try to teach classes and make a magazine after that was so strange. And it was a real reminder of all the different ways that trauma resulting from, you know, climate change, or let me say that again, climate crisis, or, um, or human violence, or other, other causes, all the ways that trauma can manifest in a community, little ways and big ways all mixed up together. It's so messy. And I think in that editor's note, I was trying to be like, to pull it all together and be like, and yet things can be good. And I could feel how hard <laughs> Like how hard I was working to do that. Sometimes I do that and I'm like, did this work or not? I don't know. Um, but you got to try. Right. I mean, it, it's a little bit of magical thinking. Yeah. But then, I mean, it, it's a reminder, I think, of, I don't know. I mean, it's it's so easy to fall into a kind of despair and to say, why bother? And yet, I mean, I, I guess so. that might be part of the question I ask you is, why do you, why do you bother? <laughs> well, it depends on the thing I'm bothering to do, but I think the answer is for a lot of things I, I have to. I know that when the work of my daily life has me really exhausted, if I can remember to come back to poems, I'll get a little bit of respite and the energy to keep going. In that way, it's very clear to me that art is not a frivolous pursuit because it just the act of keeping on in the process of making allows me to keep on with other things that are important. While my family and I were evacuated from Hurricane Florence, my partner and I had gone to my folks' house. And after about a week of that, I was like, I just can't my brain didn't work very well. Interesting how that happens in a crisis. I was, I couldn't get a lot of work done, which, you know, maybe I shouldn't even have been trying to do a lot of work while evacuated from a hurricane. But finally, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to Asheville Bookworks and I'm going to work on a printing project because that I know how to do. Like that I can do with my body and my mind. I'm going to distract myself and I'm going to get a little bit done. And that was the best decision I made during that time because while we waited to go back to our home and see how things were, I had something to do with my hands and my body that made me think really hard and work really hard and be tired and feel satisfied. And because this particular thing I was working on had been commissioned by the studio for an event that was going to happen later that fall, it had a deadline attached. And also I knew I was going to get the chance to share it with people. And so that made it a lot easier in those weeks to to wait to see what we were going to be able to do when we got home. And if I hadn't had that, I probably would have been a much less pleasant person to be around, among other things. It was the only option that made sense. And at the same time, it was an option because I have a great deal of privilege. Right. You know, the privilege to learn how to print is a big one. It takes a lot of time and, you know, some money. And then to be able to say, well, I think I need to just go do this and be able to do it and have the support of my family and the resources to do it, I feel lucky to have been able to make that choice. What were you working on? You said you, you had a deadline on a project. What was, the, what was the project? Asheville Bookworks 
had a series called Vandercooked Poetry Nights where a printer and a poet collaborate and the printer makes a broadside of a poem by the poet and then there's a reading and then people in the audience can try pulling the last run of a print of the broadside. It's a fantastic series um, run by Laurie Corral, who's the owner of Bookworks, and by Landon Godfrey, a poet in Nashville. And although Bookworks has now closed to the public, the series may continue in some form, but it, it's just a wonderful event. Every time I've gone, it's been amazing. And they invited me to read. And then Laurie very casually said, and you'll print your own broadside, right? And I was like, oh, because <laughs> I, although I've been printing for a while, I haven't done a lot of commissioned work. You know, I'd never been invited to make something like that before. So I was printing a couple of, of poems from this new project, the Believe Project I've been working on, which are in this particular case, charms for hemlock trees affected by the woolly adelgid that try to offer those trees some support. So I printed them and I took hemlock needles that a friend had gathered and glued those to a sheet and printed those as a, as a cover sheet for this little kind of hemlock hymnal I started to think about it as. And yeah, that's what I was working on. Well, now I, I have like seven things I want to ask about. So I'll... <laughs> So I'll ask the the question that goes to the past first, and then I'll move forward. But I guess I'd ask, when did you start working in this medium and, and printing and making prints? You know, it's weird to me that I didn't find it sooner. I think when I was in grad school, when I was in grad school, I went to the Museum of Printing in Massachusetts and saw some old presses and the equipment and knew that I loved it, but somehow it just wasn't the right time. And then later for my birthday, I want to say in like 2009, I gave myself as a birthday present um, registration for this Ladies of Letterpress conference that that year was happening in Asheville. And after that, I took my first letterpress workshop at Asheville Bookworks with Frank Brannon, a wonderful printer. He's at Speakeasy Press in Virginia, and he's incredible. And I just never wanted to stop, which of course presents some challenges because printing requires a lot of equipment that is old and not super widely available, and there's not a closer studio to where I live. So eventually I'll need to get my own press is I think what will need to happen. But I just love the way that it allows a poem, for instance, to be an object in the world. Like in my mind, the best poems are ones that kind of need to be able to pick, be picked up as objects and held. And printing lets you do that for a poem, which I think is amazing. Does printmaking change or has printing changed your relationship to the way you make poems? You know, I think they kind of have to be separate because they each require such concentration and mental effort of very different kinds. I did actually, when I printed those charms for Hemlock for the Vandercook tonight, I did revise those poems quite a lot. They had appeared in an anthology called Big Energy Poets a couple years back. And when I started setting the type for them, setting type is so fun. It's so fun. But when I started doing it for these, I was like, 
each line started to kind of fall apart a little bit, which was a very unsettling experience because when you're setting type, your line can physically fall apart if you're not careful, but like intellectually the lines were falling apart at the same time and it was like, okay, I gotta slow down and see what's gonna happen. And that process did force some really useful revision, but I would say my preference is to, you know, have the poem be clear unto itself before I get to the stage of setting it. This is why if I had the luxury of having my own press, I would do more setting of other people's poems. Because if you're doing someone else's poem, you're definitely not changing the poem <laughs> while you set it, right? <laughs> like right. it's a thing that already exists. We're approaching the end of our time. I was wondering if you might share with us one more of your poems that appears in the review. Against Stoicism. An itch untouched will twitch and wail till an answering scratch unhitches hell. A tempered squeal can conjure oil. Squeak, wheel, you may as well. Annalena, it's been such a pleasure talking to you about your work and your work's relationship to your life and the world around you. Thank you so much for being with us here on the Swanee Review Podcast. What a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Suwannee Review Podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Suwannee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at thesuwanneereview.com. To discover what's happening at the Review, visit our website, or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Suwannee Review. Special thanks to our producer, Helen Wynana, and sound engineer Alex Martin. Music by Annie Bowers. Until next time, this is the Suwannee Review, new since 1892.